If you ever watch college football, there's a point in the game where uh, the guys on the sideline start walking around holding up four fingers. Four fingers. And they're walking around on the sideline showing each other their four fingers. Four fingers. Here you go. Four. Four. It's four, right? Uh, If you know much about football, you know what that is. Uh, A football game is divided into two halves. It's divided into four quarters. When the fourth quarter rolls around, the game really starts. At least in the mind of the players and the coaches sometimes. In practice, you practice for the fourth quarter. You practice for that crunch time at the end. And so what the guys are doing is when they walk around holding four fingers up is they're not just <clears throat> stating the obvious because hopefully they've been playing long enough to know what time it is. They know it's the fourth quarter and they got the big clock over there that has a big four on it, right? They're not just communicating the obvious to each other. They all know that. What they're saying to each other is it's, it's go time. I mean, this is it time. There is no other time. We've played three, three down. This is it. At the end of this quarter, the whistle blows. The referee will hold the ball up and call the game over. Whatever the score says is what it is. Game over. And so they walk around holding four fingers up to let each other know we got to do it and we got to do it now. We don't have any more time. We've got to pour all of our heart and our soul, all of our preparation, all of our knowledge, all of our study. Everything has to come down to right here, right now, because the whistle will blow at the end of this game. And we don't want to have not left it all on the field. You ever heard that expression? Leave it all on the field. That means don't hold anything back. Don't don't. Take anything that you've learned, anything that you've studied, anything that you've prepared for up to this point and keep it in the locker room. No, we've got to spend it all. This is where we put it all on the line. Fourth quarter. When Paul says these are the last days, recognize, Timothy, chapter three, verse one, that we are in the last days. He's essentially holding up four fingers to the rest of Christianity throughout the ages. The last days started when Jesus came the first time. The last days will be over when he comes again. In Paul's mind, he was in the fourth quarter of the game. It's go time. This is it time. There is no more time. And the further the clock rolls, the closer we get to the whistle blowing, spiritually speaking. It's a Christ coming back and calling an end to the game. Time is up. Time is up. Paul lived, all right? He lived and was able to write this kind of letter uh, just before his death and say the kind of things he was saying because he lived in the fourth quarter. You, You see what I mean by that? He didn't just know it it was the last days. He lived in a perspective that evidenced the fact that he knew it was the last days. Here's the deal. Paul was, comparatively to us, he was on the front end of those last days. We are getting closer and closer to the tail end of those last days. Paul gave his life in such a way to this gospel message. 
in such an extreme way to this gospel message, in such an abandoned way to this gospel message, because he lived with that big picture mentality that, guys, the fourth quarter has begun. We don't have much time left. And now we're, we're like 2,000 years ahead of him. How much more should we be living in these last days with a last days perspective? Guys, this is it. This is it. We are in a period of grace. If you remember Joshua and the parting of the sea, and he's waving all of the nation across, the Ark of the Covenant has gone in first, and God's very presence is holding back the floodwaters of judgment coming from the blessed Sea of Galilee, flowing down the river of judgment all the way into the stagnant pool of the Dead Sea. If you remember that picture of salvation from the Old Testament, you realize that we're in the season where we're standing in the floodwaters, but God has restrained the waters for just a certain amount of time so that we can wave more people through. Come from the wilderness to the blessed land flowing with milk and honey, but those floodwaters will fall back. We don't have all day. To stand in the river. The days will end. We're in the fourth quarter. Paul lived with that big picture mindset. That's how he could say some of the stuff he said here. He could say that Paul was on his last lap in his mind. He was on the last leg of the relay race that he feels like he's running. And as he passes that baton, he's saying, this is it, guys. This is it. Run hard. It's almost over. And you say, well, that's kind of foolishness. You know, it's been a couple thousand years more. How much more then ought we of the same faith? If Paul at the beginning of the last days ran in such a way that he did, how much more ought we run as if these these are the last moments? These are the last ticks on the clock. In uh, music theory, I'm not a music person, but I've read. In music theory, there's what's called the coda. Am I saying that right, music people? It's what's called the coda. It's at the end of the musical piece. And it's typically the part in the musical piece where things come to a crescendo. The music begins to ramp up. Everything gears up for the climatic And the music gets faster, more intense. It comes to the climax. It comes to the pinnacle. We are at, in Paul's mind, we're at the coda of eternity. We're at the pinnacle of all history. Grace being restrained will come to an end and judgment will fall. And those who are found not in Christ, they're swept away into death. Paul gave his life because he believed he was in he was in the fourth quarter. So when he says here in chapter three, realize this, Timothy, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Paul understood that he was in the last days and he knew difficult times. That's obvious. He knew Timothy would find difficult times and he knew that we would find difficult times. But Paul lived with that last day perspective his whole life. And he expects Timothy to do the same. And he expects us 
throughout the ages for as long as the Lord will be patient. Peter says it this way, that God's not slow about his promise to come back and judge the world in justice and righteousness and holiness. He's not a slacker. You could translate the passage. But instead, here's what God is doing, he says. God is being patient towards us. Imagine this. There were those that were, that were running around saying to Peter, where is your God? I mean, people keep dying and he's not back yet. I thought we were in the last days. And he says, listen, God's not slow about keeping his promise to come back and make all things right. Let me tell you what he is doing. He's being patient towards us. Patient for what? Because he's not willing that any of us should perish, Peter says, but that all might come to repentance. That's what these last days are about. That's what's keeping God in the fourth quarter from just blowing the whistle and calling it all to an end. And so you see how this paradigm just changes everything. If you believe it's the fourth quarter, church, we live differently. We live more like a Paul or a Timothy. We live differently. We play harder. The game's almost over. We never know when God's long-suffering and patience is drawn to an end. And he comes back with justice. Holding all men to an account for what they did with his son. And here we stand. (laughs) uh, Living our life. Some of us dilly-dallying. Thinking that the game's just going to go on and on and on and on and on. And we go about our business. And we build up our retirement plan. We work towards our career plan. We have this mentality that, um, that we're, we're actually in the matrix. And we don't even realize there is a matrix. If you've not seen the matrix, I don't have time to explain it. Somebody asked my wife uh, this past week, you know, what is, what is Daryl's, uh, what's his intent? I don't remember the word they used, but what, it was something like, what is his intent with Cornerstone? What is his, what's his, what's he trying to accomplish? And it kind of, you know, when she said that to me, it kind of, I didn't really know how to answer that. I mean, I can give you our purpose statement. I, I believe in our purpose statement. I believe in our vision statement. They're not just, you know, contrived little trite things. I, I wholeheartedly believe in those. I can quote them to you. Uh, but it, it seemed like there was something different in there. And it was, it was like, what is my heart? Like, what do I... As the pastor of this church, what do I want? As I thought about that right here in this part of the message, I thought what I want is what Paul had for all of us. Throughout all of my time pastoring, teaching, etc., it's always boiled down to like this thing in me that just wishes I could grab your heart, grab the eyes of your heart, and give you the perspective that, that a guy like Paul has on life. That we're living in the fourth quarter. If you can get that, it changes everything. Your life Monday morning will look different. Why do you think Paul could write such words from a, from a dungeon? It's because he believed it. He believed it. But we, 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 we turn that off. We prefer to live in the matrix. And what is my, you know, as I thought about it, what is my intent? What is my goal? Like, I feel like Morpheus and I'm trying to reach in and grab Neos and and shake you and wake up and say, listen, you're stuck. You're stuck in a false reality. Wake up to the truth. Uh, I'll give you an example of how this works for me. (laughs) It's uh, it's when that Feed the Children commercial comes on. And um, like, I know, I know that those 
those situations are real. And I know those kids are real. Like I know it's, it's, it's not just some made up deal. Like I don't see it here in Jefferson, in Georgia, in America. At least I don't see it. It seems so far away over there. And, and what do most of us do? We, we, we grab the remote and we turn the channel as soon as possible. As if to say, uh, if I can just separate myself from that reality, my life doesn't actually have to change. Because that's what, that's what would have to happen. If we sat there and we actually watched it and we actually believed that those kids are in that situation and they have that plight for real, then we'd be moved to action. But instead we turn the channel. And I wondered, I wondered if that, maybe that's, maybe that's our mentality towards God in this fourth quarter that we're in. Is, is we would prefer not to look up at the clock. We would prefer to just assume that this thing's going to roll on and on and on for another thousand, two thousand, however many thousands of years you prefer to believe. You would prefer to believe that, that it's not going to happen, at least in your lifetime. And so that we can then focus on what we were doing when the commercial came on. And not be drawn to some other action that might take us out of our own comfort zone, might take our focus off of whatever we were focused on. You, you tracking with me? And so we just turn the channel on God. We don't want to know that we're in the last days. We don't want to know that we're in the fourth quarter. Because if we actually do believe that, then I have to adjust. I have to be moved to some sort of action, right? That's how Paul lived. But instead, we, we find that in the last days... Men will be focused not on the big picture, but on the small picture, namely the I picture. Verse 2, for men will be in these last days, follow along, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. We've got a, we've got a Copernicus problem. You remember your uh, eighth grade science class? Remember Copernicus? Anybody remember what he was known for? Copernicus, if I remember correctly, he's the guy uh, who who changed everything. He's the guy who said that the universe does not swirl around our planet. Instead, our planet with the rest of the universe swirls around the true center, which is the sun. You remember some of this now? Before that, we believed that we were the center of the universe and everything swirled around us here on planet Earth. That we were, the, we were the big deal and everything moves around us. And this guy said, no, that's, that's not really how it works. And he just blew up all those prior theories. And he brought a new reality. That, listen, we're not the center of the universe. In fact, we circle around the sun. I think what Paul's point here is, is that the days will become evil in the last days because we have we have a problem on who is the center. We have found that ourselves are the center. Do you notice the list here? Men will become lovers of who? Self. And lovers of everything else comes after that. We become selfish. It becomes a me universe. And instead of the S-U-N or S-O-N being the center of the universe, 
we would prefer to believe that everything just revolves around us and our plans and all that we're doing. And Paul's trying to help us to see like a Copernicus of theology. Listen, the world doesn't revolve around you. But in the last days, when we look across the landscape of humanity, you know what we're going to see? We're going to see people who still believe that the world revolves around them and that they're at the center of the universe and that the focus is, is them. Paul's, Paul's living just, just the opposite. This whole thing rotates around the sun. It rotates around Jesus, Christ crucified. He's part of that universe. Um, the list. I'm not going to unpack all these. I'll just give you, as I already have, the central theme that it's all about us. It's a selfish list, isn't it? And when we become self-focused, we get, we get all that you find on this list. We're unloving. We're arrogant. We're boastful. We don't listen to our parents. Parents are bad to the kids. You could add to this list, by the way. If you don't find yourself on here, then guess what? Uh, this is not an exhaustive list. It's a list that's indicative of the people in the last days, but it's not exhaustive. You could add to it if you need to add your own list. But, but this is typically what we'll find. Notice something. That the last days, he say, are not going to be difficult because of famine, because of natural disasters, because of disease. All that might happen. You know what Paul's concerned with? He's concerned that the last days will be evil. The last days will be a problem because of people now that's all fine and well and good if the people we're talking about are some other people if the people we're talking about are all the lost people out here in the world if this list applies to them well then we get that that makes sense and we'll just have to deal with that and guess what timothy it's just going to be hard and you've got all these bad people out there and and you've got to live with them, and we're trying to be gracious to them, and we're trying to extend uh, the gospel to them, etc. But we can't help that they're like this. Here's the kicker, church. That just like in chapter 2, the problems didn't come from the outside in Paul's mind. The problems were, were from the inside. People, people chattering emptily. People um, uh, causing literally uh, catastrophe in the church, a catastrophe in the church because of their because of their arguing over words, because of their word wars, literally. They ruin the hearers. They ruin the faith of some of those in the church. And, he, and he, just as he says there in chapter 2 that this is, this is happening in the church, the context does not change in chapter 3. Look at verse 5. These men, and women, by the way, and children, who are lovers of self, who have that me-centered universe, these who this whole list applies to, verse 5, they are people who are holding to a form of godliness, or you could translate that religion. They're holding to a form of religion, although they have denied its power. Here's what this means. The people that he's talking about in the list are right here. Darn it, Paul. Why couldn't you be talking about those guys? That'd be, that'd be easier. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be easy in life. But it wouldn't step on my toes. Here's the problem, church. Paul is warning Timothy about us, potentially. 
We will, in the last days, in our empty religion, empty in the sense that he says it has a form, like it has this facade, it has this shell, but there is no power behind it. There is nothing to it. It's a fraud. It's a sham. It's a veneer Christianity. You know what a veneer is on your furniture? It's that thing on the outside that makes it look real. But if you knock that off, right, if your kid runs his little truck into it or swings a golf club into it, what do you find out? That it's just particle board underneath. It's, it's a fraud. It's not real. And what Paul's saying here is we've got this whole list of people that are causing trouble in the church and, and creating this terrible fourth quarter. They live here with this facade, with this shell, this empty shell of Christianity on the face, this form of it. But there's really no power within. There's no reality of what they're what they're putting on the front. It's what one commentator called a painting of a feast. That's all great and well and the food looks great, but you cannot eat it. It does no good. It's the it's the church run through a taxidermy. It looks alive on the wall, doesn't it? You're looking at that deer. He's kind of following you around the room like that thing looks alive. But there's nothing in it. The viscera is gone. All the insides are empty. This list. This list applies to those of us in the church who find ourselves fitting into the list somewhere. And here's why. Because we hold to a form of godliness. We've got religion, but we've got no relationship that brings power. And so the church then collectively just becomes this empty shell, you know, like the deer on the wall. And it might look good from the outside, but it never moves. It never, it never does anything. It's got no bite anymore. Outward appearance with no life on the inside. We become a fraud. And when you live Christianity like that, when, when your Christianity is just the shell of a thing and you go through the motions, okay, the kind of Christian you end up with in the last days, in our days, are guess what? Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God who we purport to love first and foremost. And then in verse 5, he just... He, he lowers the boom and he says, that's what's going on in here, Timothy. It'd be one thing to deal with all that trouble as you walk among the people of the world. But guess what, Timothy? You're going to have to deal with it in here because we've got a whole lot of people who end up in, in this room with just a facade of their Christianity. And Paul, I believe, is saying to Timothy, we don't have time. For a facade of Christianity. We don't have time to fake it. We don't have time to have this shell without any power behind it. We don't have time to have the form without, without the power of the gospel in reality. Time's almost up. And we can't live like this, church. We can't live as frauds. Avoid such Men and women and children as this. Avoid them like the plague. 
Timothy, you can't get caught up in, in, a, in, a, in a Christianity that's not powerful. You can't get caught up in a Christianity that's not making a difference because the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. Time is almost up. Time is almost up. The, the period of grace is almost over. We don't have time to dilly-dally. We don't have time to waste on ourselves. We don't have time to live focused in a me universe. We've got to put the sun back in the center of our universe. We've got to rotate around his centrality, if you will. Verse 6 and 7, look at how empty religion works and who it works on. For among them are those who enter into households. You could translate that. Those who creep into households and captivate. Isn't that a good word? Captivate. Weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. Uh, Paul is not here trying to pick on women and say that they're weaker than men. Don't take it there. What he's, what he's going for here is a specific situation that he's seen come true. He's already said in Corinthians that there will be wolves among the sheep wreaking havoc. He told us in chapter 2 that there will be devastation to the hearers. And the emphasis here on these women is that they have what could be translated not weak, but idle. They have time on their hands to sit around and, and be influenced, to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, he would say in another letter. On top of that, they are women who are weighted down with sins. They've got their own guilt problems. They've got their own stuff they're trying to figure out and fix. And these guys creep in and they use the craftiness of their words, much like the author of All Lies himself. They captivate. They captivate those in this volatile, weak situation who not only are overcome and weighed down with their sins, but they have their own various impulses. They've got their own hurts and problems. And really, this is a picture of, of, of the whole world. There are these lives at stake, Paul says. And we've got these guys who fit into this list very well. They love themselves more than they love God. They've got a form of religion, but they don't have any real power behind it. And they captivate these weaker individuals who are needy people, justifiably in need of truth. But they come in with this false religion and they come in with weak teaching to weak people and they captivate them with their words. And now they've got them. And you know, the, you know, the real problem, he wraps it up in verse seven. These these people who are weak. Here's here's the crux of their of their struggle. They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's a repeat of verse five. It's form without power. They're absorbing all this teaching and information, but it never really actually does absorb. It never does actually seem to sink in. Uh, one pastor said, we in our modern day are bombarded with truth. We're bombarded with information. It's not for lack of information. It's whether or not we can weed out the bad information and find the truth in it. And we find that there are people in the situation who are clinging to a form of religiosity of Christianity that has no real power of the gospel, truth behind it. And guess what? They, they, they audit the classes, but they never graduate. They never graduate to repentance and holiness. And they get sucked in by every wind of doctrine. Verse 8. 
Think back to that uh, commercial, that Feed the Children commercial. And I got the picture of us once again here, of this verse 7, always learning, never able to come to knowledge of truth. It's like that kid that you see on the commercial. And, and his stomach is usually extended. And I remember when I was young, I thought, why does he need so much food? He looks fat. But what the truth is, is, is although there is the appearance of being full, they're really anemic. That, that's maybe a good picture for verse 7. For many in the church, we are on many accounts an anemic people in our Christianity. We're starved for truth. We're overfed but undernourished spiritually. Did you catch that? Overfed with all kinds of truth, so-called truth. All kinds of preaching, all kinds of teaching. Focused on this and that and the other. And we look fat and happy. But guess what? We're extremely malnourished with anything of power, of worth. Because these guys... They're not helping the situation. They're focused on themselves, and for whatever reason, they're creeping in. They're captivating the audience with these weak messages, with these weak truths, calling it religion. But there is no real power because there is no relationship. You know, have you ever heard anybody say, you're a very religious person? You know what basically they're saying? You're pretty good at habits. Someone who says you're pretty religious, they, they just mean, you, well, you pray a lot, you read a lot, you, 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 you give to the poor a lot, you put your $10 in the box a lot, you show up at church a good bit. You're a pretty religious person. That really is, that really is no clear indicator of your true spirituality, though, is it? Because we're not about our religiousness. We're not about the habits. Paul would say there's something deeper here. We need the power and not just the shell, not just the form. So verse 8, we get imposters, and there always have been imposters. Look at what he says. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men have opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all. These imposters, they've always been around. Janus and Jambres, this is the only time their names are mentioned in this book. By the way, this is the third chapter in this letter now. And in every chapter, including the fourth chapter that we'll see, Paul calls people out by name. How about that? How about if we actually live with that perspective, church? If we start falling behind, your name might actually get called from the pulpit. Chapter 1. Two people get mentioned. Chapter two, two people get mentioned by name. Chapter three, Genesis and Jambre. Chapter four, we get two more. Paul's not messing around. He doesn't have time. Timothy, they've always been around. They've always been around. They always will be around. Realize this, that in the last days, this is what you get. Welcome to the gospel ministry. Um. Let me read you something. One, one guy wrote a commentary on this. And um, he was making the point that uh, Christianity and the teaching of Christianity and the preaching of Christianity has become much like modern reporting. Modern reporting. He says it used to be that we would honor uh, integrity 
in reporting. Listen, I'll let him I'll let him say it. In modern American culture, we no longer celebrate journalists and objective journalism, objective being the key word, in the classic sense. We celebrate political, social, cultural commentators and sensationalism posing as reporting. We have people giving opinions about what they think the news is. We have television personalities posing as reporters who twist, spin, interpret, and omit facts to further their own ideological agendas. Is that how the news works these days? You find very few people who just actually say what the news is. You turn to MSM, any of the, any of the news channels up above, you know, two, five, six, eight, eight, whatever, and it's all political. They all seem to have their own agendas. They all have their own angle. It's not just saying, here's what the president said, but it's saying, here's what the president really said. Right. No matter what the topic, health care, finances, uh, state of, you know, youth in our country, it doesn't matter what it is. We, uh, the art of just reporting the facts is gone. That's what he's talking about here. But here's what he says. As tragic as that is, what is more damnable is that we have some pulpiteers posing as preachers who are not actually proclaiming news about the king's son. Instead, they're giving their opinions about social, political, and cultural matters, drawing large crowds in the process, but offering no good news in a real and true sense. It's got the form of religion, but it's got no power because we're not preaching Christ crucified. We're teaching this, we're teaching that, come hear this, come hear that, and a lot of people will Come hear that. That's fine. And they draw crowds to themselves. But he says, what happened to heralding the good news? What happened to being witnesses to the power of God that leads men to salvation, namely the cross of Christ? What happened to that? I mean, we're called to be heralders. We're called to be reporters in the truest sense that we don't we're not here giving our opinions and agendas and interpretations and throwing in all of our own stuff. We don't have time for that. We don't have time to preach to impress. We have to preach to change, to transform, because the buzzer's going off, people. And the floodwaters come crashing down, and your friends, your family, my neighbors, your neighbors, our children, potentially, are going to be swept away, eternally separated from from a gracious God who's being patient towards us because he's not willing that any of us should perish. That's not his desire. He's got this thing seemingly running into overtime. He's gracious. He's long-suffering. Why? Because his desire is that we all come to repentance and that no one perishes in their own sins and has to be separated from him. Now, let's get in the game. It's the fourth quarter, Paul says. Don't worry about these other guys. Verse 9, they're not going to make any further progress. Back in Moses' day, Moses threw his staff down, turned into a snake. It was a miracle of God. They came in, these magicians, and they, they you know, worked their magic, and they, they, they were imposters, and they made it look like they did the same thing. And then God says, Moses, your staff, it just runs right over there, and it swallows up the magician's snake. God has the last word. These frauds, these imposters, these people pitching their own message, it'll all run its course They've always been there. They always will be, Timothy. Recognize it. Deal with it. Speak the truth among all the mess, among all the folly, he says, among all the foolishness. Proclaim the truth. Proclaim the truth. Proclaim the truth. Hold to the truth. Chapter 2, chapter 1, that was entrusted to you, that you are to guard 
Hold to it. Hold to it. It's fourth quarter. Don't worry about these guys. Their folly will become obvious to all, just as Janice and John Brace. All right, so what should we do with this? Let me wrap this up. What should, uh, what should this passage maybe, instead of what should we do with this, what should this passage do as far as impacting us? Let me give you a couple things. Number one, it should scare you a bit. It should scare you a bit. Say, preacher, you really want to, you really want to scare people? Here's what I mean. I, I, think, I think when you read that list, you should fearfully, like your pastor did, be reading that list and just cringing a little bit, saying, Ooh, I sound too much like that one. I sound too much like that one. I sound too much like that one. I hope, pray God, don't allow me to fall into the category of these men and women. Don't let this be the testimony of my life. Don't let me be a lover of myself over being a lover of God. I think this passage should scare us a little bit. Uh, I've told you a story before of one of my high school football coaches, Coach McCall. He was the most intimidating coach on the staff. He wasn't the head coach, but he was the coach that would talk to us before the game because when he talked, everybody listened. You were kind of a little bit afraid of him. You didn't really know if he liked you or not. He didn't say a whole lot, but when he did speak, you listened. And every week before, uh, before the game would start, he would be the guy that would give us that motivational speech. And it was, it was kind of an odd thing because... Uh, all the other coaches and the trainers and the water boys and all that, they had to leave, man. Not even the head coach could stay when Coach McCall talked. It was just Coach McCall. Everybody else had to leave. And that was a little bit intimidating of itself because you, didn't never, knew, you never knew what this guy was going to do or say. And he probably said some things you're not supposed to say to 16 and 17-year-old boys. But I remember one speech above all, and I remember quite a few. But I remember one more than any others. It was at the beginning of my senior season. We just finished three a days. That's when we practiced like all day long and all night. It was at the end of that time. So we're getting ready to start the season. And he's got all of us sitting there in a circle and all the other coaches have left. And the clouds start coming in and it gets dark. And um, here we are sitting with Coach McCall. And he's got his first speech of our senior season. And he looks around at us and he says, some of you sitting in this huddle right now are imposters. Some of you are not yellow jackets. That was our mascot. You're not real yellow jackets. And now at this point, I'm a senior. I've been playing football since I was six years old. Every year, I mean, I was devoted. I was invested whether I wanted to be or not. Uh, but I was there, man, and I was giving it my all. I wasn't the fastest, the strongest, the biggest. But here I am. I'm, I'm going into my senior year. I'm the starting quarterback. And as he's saying this, I'm thinking, he's talking to me, man. <laughs> he's talking to me. I know he is. And he goes through this speech. It didn't take long, but essentially he said, there's three of you. There's three of you sitting out there right now, and you shouldn't be here. And I guarantee you, you won't be here at the end of the season. Well, you're looking around, and you're thinking, oh, no, no, it's not me. It's got to be that guy. If there's only three, it's him, him, and him. It's not, it's not me. It scared me. I mean, it, it, I went into the locker room and I talked to a couple of other guys, a couple of good buddies of mine. One was a starting tailback, one was a starting wide receiver. And we were all convinced, man, that it was us. <laughs> I mean, there was in every one of us, there was this little part of us that in a healthy way, follow me now, in a healthy way, we said, is, is he talking about us? Because what he said about these men is that they were they were basically frauds. They wanted to wear the jersey on Friday, but they didn't actually want to be in the trenches with us. And he said, by the end of the season, after we go through this long, hard season, they'll fall out. They'll become obvious. We'll know who's not legit. And they'll have to turn in their jersey. 
It'll all pan out in the end. Who'll realize their folly? Um, but that's, 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 I think, Paul's word to the church here, to Timothy, to us. That unfortunately, in these last days, we've got people who are hanging out just because they want to wear the jersey on Sunday. Just because they want the form of the thing. Just because they're clinging in eternal error that the form of the thing alone the religious, habitual, coming on Sunday, reading my Bible a little bit, praying a little bit, showing up to church a little bit, putting money in the box a little bit. Those, those shells of true relationship with God, that they're enough. And I, and I want to say, I want to scare you a little bit and say that that's, church is not enough. It's not enough. And when the fourth quarter's over and you stand before a holy God, you can't depend on those, those empty shells. You've got to be able to stand before a holy creator God of all of the universe and give an account. And if you have to give that account all on your own, then you're doomed. Because we've all fallen short. We've all sinned. Unless Christ... By you have placed your faith in him. Unless Christ steps in front of you and says, this, this one's with me. Then it's eternal separation from him. And some of us will face that eternal separation because we are clinging merely to the form without anything powerful, meaning anything real behind it. And we punch the clock on Sunday and we do our deal. But Paul would say, listen, I don't have time for this, guys. I don't have time. Here I am sitting in the bottom of a dungeon. I don't have time to mess with you. Timothy, don't mess with these people. Avoid guys who want to live the rest of their life like that. You want to live the rest of your life like that? That's fine. I don't have time for it. Why? Because this thing is ticking down. And people are going to hell. That's the perspective Paul lived with. You should be a little bit scared. You don't want to, you don't, you, your life, and, and let me just tell you, as your pastor read this list, my life looks way too much like that. And we've got to fix that. I've got to fix that. We ought to be a little bit on edge. We ought to wonder, is that me? Is that me? Is that me? Number two, it should give you perspective. It should give you that, that last day perspective that Paul most obviously had. This passage should cause us to wake up and realize we're living in this false reality. We've got to raise our sights, set our focus on him, Understand that there is a clock and it is ticking. It ought to change our perspective to a last day perspective. Number three, we ought to preach the word. We ought to preach the word. No nonsense. This passage calls us, every one of us, not just me, professional preacher. We're all called to be heralds of this message. When you leave here, your job is to herald the good news. My job is to equip the saints for the work of that ministry out there. You, you're the troops going out there. So hear what I'm saying now. Don't be a part of the folly. We don't have time to be a part of out there talking about foolishness. We've got to get to the heart of the matter. We've got to preach the word. No nonsense. We don't have time for it. We don't have time to be. We don't have time to be pitching a religion when there is a, a real relationship behind it. Amen. Let me give you one more. Number four. 
you got to understand that your power comes from God. We're not the magicians, guys. We're not the magicians. Our job is to herald the truth. To walk in the power of the Holy Spirit promised to us, Acts 1.8. And to proclaim a powerful salvation in Jesus Christ, Him crucified, resurrected. And here we creep up to Easter, the time of the year where we celebrate where we celebrate where Christ accomplished it all. And now he said, let's wait. Let's wait for grace to reach out with our hands, with our feet, with our words. Grace, reach out. Tell them crucified, buried, raised again in victory. That's our message. That's our message. And the power of that message is not in our slick words. It's not on how cool we can create an atmosphere in this place. It's not in how well you can present it. It comes through the power of the Holy Spirit working in the spirit of man. Your job is just to tell him the truth. How, how comforting is that? You don't have to be a great salesman. You don't have to be a magician trying to captivate, creeping in on your audience. Now, let's tell them the truth. Let's tell them the truth. The most loving thing we can do is to tell the truth, even the hard truth. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for your word. It is, it is deeper than, than our hearts are very often willing to go. I thank you that your word transforms us. Lord, create in us this fourth quarter perspective. Lord, when we walk out of this place, um, don't let this message terminate. What I mean, Lord, is keep us awake tonight if you have to, until we've dealt with the fact that if this is real, if this is real, then, God, the clock is ticking. And our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones, our children, Father, they're perishing on their own. But there is hope. There is hope for great joy in your Son, Christ Jesus, who paid the debt on our behalf that we are unable to pay on our own, lest we give our very life to it. Father, you've made a way. You've been completely gracious. You're holding back justice right now so that none would perish on their own, but that all might have a chance to come to repentance. Father, we're in the last days. And they will be rough last days because those who long to live with a heart like the Apostle Paul and like Timothy and like many others throughout history, those who long to live as Slaves, abandoned to your call and your cause. Those who long to live on that narrow road, Father, they'll be outnumbered by those who just cling to religiosity, to those who just cling to the form, but there's nothing, there's nothing real behind it. Father, help us. Help us, Father, to avoid those types of people and continue to press forward in this race in the spreading of your gospel before time's up. We love you, Lord. If we, if we didn't, then, Father, we'd have no hope in making any headway out here on our, 
on our own. The truth is you're with us and you have first loved us. And so, Lord, we live in a responsive love to you. Lord, go with us now. The real work begins when we leave this place. So we ask that you would, you would make your presence very apparent to us on Monday morning. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Who is our cornerstone? Amen and amen.